This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the eminent archaeologist David Wengrow, co-author with the late David Graeber of the new and illuminating book, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. It's a marvelous book, David, one that not only turns upside down the standard story of the human past, but also points toward the possibility of a better and brighter human future. Perhaps you can begin by reminding us of the standard story that you and David Graeber so convincingly deconstruct. We then can proceed to the hope of better things to come. Thank you, Lewis. Well, the standard story is the one which is still told a thousand times in many different disciplines, other than in our own of archaeology and anthropology where it's been quite clear for some time that most of the key pillars of this standard narrative of how we became modern in our own particular way uh, really have fallen. But in order to realize that, it's worth just rehearsing some of the, the main features of that standard narrative, which one can find today in fields from sociology to evolutionary psychology and beyond. It begins with our species living in small, egalitarian bands of hunter-gatherers, in which social relations are simple, just as technology and material culture are simple, and groups are of small scale. Nothing of any great significance in social, economic, or political terms is supposed to happen within this standard narrative until our species creates agriculture. With the rise of farming systems, we're supposed to get the first experiences of surplus in our economies. And with surplus come new opportunities for the privatization of wealth, the growth of status hierarchies. Agriculture, so the conventional story goes, propelled human populations to new sizes And with a new scale of interaction came also complexity, which in this conventional story implies hierarchy as well. As we become more complex, supposedly we lose those primordial freedoms and that primordial capacity to live in societies of equals. And we become further and further tied in to what eventually become, in the conventional narrative, agrarian states of the kind that dominate human history, at least in Eurasia, for the whole period since the Bronze Age thousands of years ago up to the Middle Ages, when finally uh, we get the transition to industrial capitalism and eventually finance capitalism, built on those evolutionary principles of increasing complexity, hierarchy, stratification, inequality, and the accumulation of wealth and surplus in the hands of an increasingly small number of people. 
That, I think, in broad outline is the evolutionary narrative, which still today underpins uh, a great deal of writing in history and the social sciences. It's rarely made explicit these days, but you only have to push back against it or scratch the surface to realize that it's very much there, still in place. And what David and I try to show in The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, is that if one takes on board the scientific findings of archaeology and anthropology from all over the world, uh, which have accumulated over the last few decades, almost nothing about this conventional narrative actually turns out to be true. Wonderful. So what's the timeline of the standard mm. story? Well, it's an interesting question because very often the the expanses of time are not stipulated. We're simply asked to imagine a, a state of nature, a state of humanity before the coming of agriculture, which in reality would cover something in the order of 200,000 years, which is the length of time. And that's a conservative estimate, Lewis, but that's a conservative estimate of the length of time that archaeologists and paleoanthropologists believe that our species has been around in roughly the form we are today, by which I mean cognitively, intellectually, and roughly physically as well. So we're talking about an inordinately long length of time in which nothing supposedly much happened. Right, because the standard story about agriculture is 3,000 years ago, right? Well, these days, uh, I think the earliest uh, attested cases of people domesticating plants and animals can actually be pushed back to more like 10,000 years ago. But that is the story in one part of the world, in the Middle East. If you fan out to the Americas and various parts of sub-Saharan Africa, East Asia, then the dates come down towards closer to the period that you're talking about. So that in itself tells you something important. It tells you that talking in simplistic terms about something called an agricultural revolution is already engaging in mythology, uh, frankly, rather than history or archaeology, because in fact, uh, humanity did not go through one transition to agriculture. There were, we think these days, at least 15 completely independent cases of people domesticating crops all over the world and sometimes animals of different species too, each of which had rather different consequences. So right there, uh, you've got one pillar of the conventional story uh, has just crumbled into a thousand pieces or 15 pieces, if you'd like to be more precise. Your taking account of the crumbling is based on what? What is your methodology. I mean, it's an enormous reading and also traveling, I mean, to some of these long ago mm -hmm. sites of, of, of cities. And talk a little bit about the breadth of your investigation. Yeah. Well, this is the daunting thing about taking on a project of this scope today is that the evidence is so vast and dense 
archaeology has really advanced in leaps and bounds over the last few decades, particularly in terms of the scientific basis of the discipline, the kind of things we can find out these days about processes like the origins of agriculture by combining the methods of archaeology with environmental science, climate science, paleogenetics, isotopic studies. It's really extraordinary how much detail we can go into. And what that is doing, uh, an effect of that, is to rehumanize the past and allow us to populate it again with real human beings instead of simply speculating, as philosophers have done for decades, about processes like the origins of private property. We can now begin to ask, well, what was that process like in China? And how was that different, say, from Mesoamerica or the Middle East? We can begin to tell a much more realistic story. But it's also in many ways a surprising story. It's exactly not the kind of thing that one would simply make up sitting in one's office in your armchair, dreaming about, oh, how did we end up inventing the state? You know, let me create a story about the division of labor and then comes private property, etc. It's a story that we couldn't possibly have anticipated, but using the tools of anthropology, which allow us to see how cultural systems and political systems radically different from our own have existed in different parts of the world and are documented. Uh, this is what really allows us to open our minds and begin to interpret a lot of this otherwise puzzling archaeological data. In other words, the standard story, human beings appear in a say, 200,000 years ago, but that yes. in the standard story, they don't have any political consciousness until yes. agriculture arrives. This yeah. is a fascinating thing. I, I'm getting increasingly interested in this whole issue of consciousness, which was uh, my, my late co-author, David Graeber, had a huge interest in, in uh, philosophy and psychology. And, and I've realized that in a way, this is really at the core of, of the work we've done. I mean, it goes back, I guess, to uh, writers like Hegel talking about the evolution of human consciousness uh, as a, a kind of a process that evolves in stages where we begin with almost no consciousness at all. And it's an idea that you can also find in the uh, the philosophy of the Age of Enlightenment. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, for example, when he asked his reader to imagine humanity in the state of nature, he asks us to imagine something very peculiar, which is a, a human-like creature that is not really human, at least in the sense that you or I would regard ourselves as human. He asks us to imagine a, an, a creature which lives in virtual isolation, uh, in the wild, but also incapable of foreseeing the consequences of its own actions. In other words, lacking the capacity for foresight. And although it sounds rather absurd when you put it that way, it's really not so different from the standard narrative of human history that you find in many best-selling books, where we're told that humanity sort of stumbled from the hunter-gatherer stage into agriculture. It was the worst mistake we ever made. It created all these terrible pandemics and inequalities, but we kind of stumbled blindly into it because we knew no better. Uh, in other words, we're still 
playing this game sometimes of pretending that there was a period without self-consciousness. Actually, what the archaeological evidence tells us is that this cannot possibly be the case. Yes, and that's also the standard story of of the uh, fallen from Eden, right? I mean, the the uh, yes, that's the same kind of an idea that the innocent Adam yes. and Eve uh, suddenly gain knowledge. The the biblical overtones are very clear. I, I agree. Yeah. It's also interesting to think about how this is extended in the contemporary world uh, to. Uh, people who have been denigrated and and treated in rather the same way as if they don't know what's best for them. Uh, And there are many people in the world who found themselves in that kind of position um, in much more recent times, being told that, well, you know, your culture, your opinions don't really matter. It's sort of a relic from some earlier age, which, again, is another way of saying you have no political self-consciousness. You come across in your book of large and complex societies without the existence of the state yes in 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 these years uh, before 3000 yes. BC well there's two elements to your question lewis which i'd like to try and unpack a little what we try to do in the book is address that particular question you've asked from two different perspectives. One is to ask, what what do we mean in the first place by a state? And the other is to look at concrete examples from archaeology of, as you say, very large-scale, densely populated societies that were clearly organized in ways that depart quite radically from our conventional understandings of what it means to live in a state, which for those societies would usually imply some form of authoritarian government, some kind of central system of taxation and administration, um, and a society in which some people are pushed to the bottom while a small elite uh, enjoys the benefits of civilization uh, and, uh, and, and the surpluses of the majority's labor. Um, In the book, we look at concrete examples of early cities and urban civilizations that simply don't conform to that picture. Uh, We have cases all over the world now, from East Asia to the Black Sea uh, to Mesoamerica, of societies that uh, had populations in the tens, even hundreds of thousands, but organized themselves on more robustly egalitarian lines. It's not that the whole evolutionary picture has flipped on its head. We have plenty of examples of societies uh, that were extremely large and hierarchical and had monarchies and early forms of empires. Um, But there is no iron law, there's no cage into which people automatically consigned themselves as soon as societies scaled up. That all needs to be thrown out and and rethought from the bottom up, based on the kind of empirical evidence that archaeologists have today. Mention a few examples in in Mesoamerica. I mean, Titoacan, I think, is one of them. And also the the, uh, Ukrainian 
settlement. Correct. Yeah, the the Ukrainian examples are particularly striking. Uh, they are as ancient as the first cities in the Middle East, in Mesopotamia, which for many years was regarded uh, as uh, I think it was uh, Bob Adams, the the famous uh, Chicago archaeologist, first put it uh, that Mesopotamia is the heartland of cities uh, a generation ago. What we know these days is that six thousand years ago, roughly the time that Mesopotamia cities were forming, other cities were forming too in Europe, north of the Black Sea, in what today are the countries of Ukraine and parts of Moldova. They are as large and populous as the early Mesopotamian cities, but they are different from them in fundamental respects. Uh, there is no evidence for a uh, central monumental architecture in the form of temples or palaces. There's no evidence of writing, let alone central administration. We do not find evidence of social inequality in the form of rich elite burials or art depicting uh, rulers and conquests. Instead, what these settlements look like, um, actually the best image I can give you is rather like the rings of a tree. They're these great circular arrangements of houses, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of houses. And careful work by international teams of archaeologists has shown how this circular uh, arrangement of people was divided into districts and neighborhoods, which seem to have been self-governing, or at least we cannot find even a trace of central government. And so these are societies that found ways to agglomerate in very, very large numbers without central authority. And they lasted for a very long time in that form, upwards of 700 to 800 years. What's intriguing also about them is that they occupy uh, what geographers call an ecotone, in other words, uh, uh, a part of the, the landscape between two environments, the forest and the steppe, which is actually a rather fragile environment. And you have large numbers of these early cities really not very far from one another. So how did they manage it without exhausting their resources? This is a, a, an area of research into which a lot of work is going right now. Um, is trying to figure out how they also came up with a, a way of remaining environmentally uh, sustainable. If we flip over to the Americas uh, and think of Mesoamerican civilizations, most people's minds would probably go immediately to ancient uh, civilizations such as the Olmec or the Toltec um, or the classic Maya. Uh, which famously had royal dynasties and were organized very much on the model of hereditary kingdoms. Um, they also had warfare, uh, tribute, uh, and other forms of, of exploitation. Um, but there is another thread to the long-term history of Mesoamerica, which is much less well-known. In the book, we tried to draw together findings from history, anthropology, and archaeology to draw out that other thread, which begins in the Valley of Mexico uh, around the beginning of the Common Era, at an ancient site known today as Teotihuacan, the place of the gods in the ancient Aztec language, but it is pre-Aztec. Uh, it goes back thousands of years. 
And uh, around the year zero, in fact, human populations began to concentrate at Teotihuacan, partly to do with natural catastrophes and disasters, volcanic eruptions in the wider region seem to have pushed people into that location. They come together and they embark on a form of urban life, which is not so different from what I described before. Pyramids go up in the central district. You can still see them there today. The Pyramid of the Sun, Pyramid of the Moon, the Temple of the Feathered Serpent, and the Way of the Dead, which connects them all. So they appear to be set on a, a more typical course of, of development towards something extremely hierarchical. But then after two to three centuries, something changes in the social uh, fabric of Teotihuacan. They seem to have had a writing system, but nobody's quite able to read it yet. So we can't reconstruct these things in enormous detail. But what we can see as archaeologists is that the resources of this city, which by then incidentally has a population of at least 100,000 people, multi-ethnic and polyglot, drawn from all different parts of the wider region, from Chiapas to Yucatan to the Gulf Coast uh, in the north, coming together in this place, they stop uh, constructing monumental palaces and temples and pyramids and they divert their resources into an extraordinary project of social housing. All these villas go up, these apartment blocks. They cover the entire city on a grid formation, and almost the entire population is housed in what to our eyes would look like really quite luxurious circumstances. These large, spacious apartment blocks with perhaps three to four nuclear families distributed within them, with communal areas, excellent sanitation, very beautiful murals uh, painted on their walls, which today one can find in top art museums and so on. And generally, people seem to have enjoyed an extremely uh, high standard of living. That's not to say that everything was perfectly equal. Archaeologists are able to tease out rather nicer and less nice examples, but it doesn't seem like uh, anyone in general fell between the cracks. Archaeologists have even tried to measure uh, statistically rates of inequality, and they come out remarkably low. So here we have a fascinating example of a society that turned its back on hierarchy and adopted a more equitable uh, way of living. And in fact, one can trace this thread of Mesoamerican civilization right up to the time of the Spanish conquest, when we still find at that time examples of cities, which are better known historically, that were also organized on strikingly uh, egalitarian lines, even examples of republics and what we could quite reasonably call forms of democracy, indigenous pre-Columbian forms of democracy. We detail them in the book. Does Poverty Point fall among those? No, Poverty Point is, uh, is further to the north in Louisiana. Uh, it dates back uh, more like three and a half thousand years ago. But you're quite right that it could reasonably be described as an urban center uh, created in that case by people who were not farming crops, by ancient hunter-gatherers uh, in, uh, in uh, that part of North America who created a site which today is a World Heritage Park, which, insofar as we can reconstruct it, 
consisted of these enormous earthworks. The plan of it looks like a huge gathering place, uh, like an amphitheater. The site suffered uh, years of neglect and uh, destruction. It's now protected and investigated to an extent. We still don't really understand how it functioned, but clearly it exerted influence over a very large part of North America. And equally clearly, it simply doesn't fit the picture of small, simple, egalitarian hunter-gatherer bands. This is really something more like a metropolis, populated by people who never farmed crops. Talk about Candy Rock and the Mm. indigenous critique. I mean, can you give us some of the background of who is Candy Rock and how do his his ideas come to Mm -hmm. Europe? And and to what extent can we say that the ideas of the Enlightenment come from North America? Well, just to to bridge a little bit between the more archaeological parts of the book and, and your question, Lewis, it might be useful for people who haven't read it to explain a little bit how we end up talking about this one particular individual, the Huron Wendat statesman, um, who went by many names, one of which was Kandirang. This is a crucial part of the book. It's really our framing of, of, of the whole book, because we realize that in order to go beyond uh, the standard narrative of history, we had to understand its roots, and in particular the roots of uh, this question, which has troubled and intrigued researchers for hundreds of years. What are the origins of social inequality? It occurred to us that, in a way, asking the question in that particular way and framing human history in that way was trapping us into certain modes of thought that made it impossible to even talk about cases like Poverty Point or some of the other articles that we've discussed, because there's already an assumption in that question that there was once a society of equals, which was primordial and universal. Where did that idea come from? We traced it back to its roots, And we found that it begins with European philosophers in the Age of Enlightenment arguing and debating the nature of faraway societies, particularly in the Americas, and particularly in those eastern parts of the Americas that were colonized by French uh, and English missionaries, traders, uh, soldiers, and so forth, from the 16th century onwards. And when we began to look deeper into this literature, we discovered that it was almost impossible to understand the roots of our conventional story of social evolution without first understanding the nature of those colonial encounters, and in particular what you called the indigenous critique, which was a very consistent set of observations about European civilization, which were made by the indigenous inhabitants of that part of North America, uh, roughly from Newfoundland to the Great Lakes region and south into upstate uh, New York. Speakers of Iroquoian and Algonquian and various other languages made cutting observations uh, about uh, European systems of behavior, morality, ethics, religion, health, sexuality, which were recorded in a thoroughly disapproving fashion in sources like the Jesuit missionary uh, relations. 
so this is hardly uh, noble savage tropes. It's actually often people who are very disapproving of what they see as the wicked liberty of these indigenous societies, uh, as one uh, Jesuit writer put it. So there is this critique which comes through in many different sources and begins to gain ground in European intellectual circles in the 18th century, in the first half of the 18th century. And, uh, of course, this is a time when uh, many in Europe themselves are beginning to think about issues of freedom, happiness, uh, equality, and prosperity, uh, and all the various uh, elements that, that go into the makeup, the complex makeup of ideas that today we refer to as the, the Age of Enlightenment. And, of course, this is a time when Europeans are traveling, trading, mixing, intermarrying all over the world, and absorbing ideas from many many different sources. One of those sources is what they refer to as the New World, and particularly the colonies of New France, where Europeans encountered societies that were based on principles of social freedom that were almost entirely alien to Europe at that time. The individual you refer to, Kandiaronk, was a leading figure in the Huron-Wendat nation. He was their speaker. He was a, a key diplomatic figure in brokering uh, negotiations between various indigenous uh, nations and factions and the various European colonists present in that region. So he was deeply familiar with uh, Europeans and uh, negotiating with he was also, and we know this from various independent accounts, a brilliant warrior and also a brilliant thinker and orator who was famous in the wider region for the speeches which he gave. He was even invited uh, on, on a regular basis, as we're told in the, uh, the account of uh, a Jesuit called Charlevoix. He was invited, Candiaronc, to the table of the then uh, governor general of that part of New France to amuse uh, the governor's officers with his brilliant oratory. Uh, and he would engage in debates on many of the topics that later became uh, very central to uh, the European Enlightenment. Some of these conversations were recorded, and they found their way into a book uh, written by a uh, relatively minor French nobleman by the name of Lahontan, who at the time was in exile from the French colonies. He was uh, more or less a vagrant uh, in, on the streets of Amsterdam. 1701-1703, he writes a book, he writes a number of books, one of which is Curious Dialogues with a Savage of Great Wisdom and Sense Who Has Travelled. And it is a dialogue between a character with his own name, La Hontan, talking to an individual who in the book appears as Adario. And Adario, as is generally recognized, is based loosely on Kandiaronk. The key question is how much of Adario's speech in the book is carried over directly from La Hontan's experiences of New France and of meeting Kandiaronk and other indigenous intellectuals, and how much is fabrication. The standard view, which we question in our book, has been that it is almost entirely fabrication. Actually, what we do in The Dawn of Everything is compare these sources to other sources of the same time, 
particularly the Jesuit relations, which record the responses of many other members of indigenous societies about Europeans. And there is a coherence there. There is a consistency, particularly the uh, the critiques of European hierarchy, uh, the way that the French are constantly deferring to one another on the basis of wealth or rank. Uh, these come across both in Candiaronk's speeches via the character of Adario and also in many other sources. Lanton's book became a bestseller. It was translated into all the major European languages of the time. Plays were based upon it. Uh, many of the great thinkers of the Enlightenment produced uh, copies of it. Voltaire, Diderot took the substance of La Hontan's dialogues with Adario slash Candiaronk and put them in the mouths of various other exotic characters who were entirely fictional. And one of the uh, the most influential uh, cases of this was the uh, Madame uh, Graffini's Letters uh, of a Peruvian Woman, where many of the same points and critiques of European civilization are put into the mouth of a fictitious Inca princess by the name of Zelia. What we show in The Dawn of Everything, uh, and this is not by any means an entirely original point, it was made by Ronald Meeks, for example, in his uh, his book, uh, what's it called, Social Sciences and the Ignoble Savage, or something like that, where he shows that in many ways our conventional story of social evolution was invented as a kind of riposte, as a kind of conservative counter-reaction to the subversive potential of the indigenous critique. And remember, this is a politically explosive period of, of uh, European history uh, around issues such as monarchy and the church. So we go a little bit into that story, and in particular the figure of Anne-Robert Turgot, who at the time is a budding young economist. He's part of Graffini's literary and intellectual circle. They share salons together. And he uh, writes a letter, which we have. We have this correspondence where he urges Graffini to uh, withdraw somewhat from the more radical criticisms of European society, and particularly from the idea that one could have a large, populous, uh, technologically sophisticated society without radical inequality. No, says Thiergo, you know, this is clearly naive. It could have catastrophic uh, consequences. We could end up with something uh, like a sort of totalitarian socialism. Uh, it's a fascinating encounter. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that Garfini ignores him, publishes her dialogues uh, in exactly the way she chooses, they become enormously popular. Thiergaud then goes off and writes a series of essays, which are really the first presentation of our modern idea of the standard narrative of human history, with all of humanity divided according to modes of livelihood, modes of production. So suddenly it becomes important whether people are hunter-gatherers or agriculturalists or industrial commercial types. This is something which um, simply doesn't feature that much in, in earlier thought about the shape of human history. Turgot brings it into existence, and it's very quickly taken up by Adam Smith and others, and, and we still use those frameworks today. But he does it in a way which is incredibly effective in neutralizing that indigenous critique, because what he does is say that the reason 
these non-European societies can have their freedoms and their equality is not because they are in any way models for us. It's not because they are in any way superior to us or ahead of us. It's precisely the opposite, says Tilgo. It's because they are inferior. They are technologically primitive. They haven't advanced uh, to that stage of modern industrial commercial civilization. And in order to do that, in order to have a complex division of labor and uh, a high productivity, one has to sacrifice those primordial freedoms. So he takes entire uh, populations, uh, including the perspectives of individuals like Kandiaronk and many others, and shunts them to the bottom of an evolutionary ladder so that they are no longer part of our contemporary world at all. They become imagined, reimagined as vestiges of some remote primitive age. And that's how we begin to absorb within European thought that standard narrative, that ambivalent story of civilization, whereas we become larger and more complex, we have to sacrifice our freedoms. It's a compelling myth, but it bears no resemblance to the modern facts of archaeology and anthropology that you and I have been talking about. And the point of our book is to show that uh, that disparity. Well, you make the point brilliantly, and, and, and let us end with that. The mm. By turning upside down the standard story, you open the door to uh, the freedom, to what you call the ecology of freedom, the possibility that mankind can organize itself in a way that is not the heavy hand of of Mm -hmm. capitalism. Well, what we learn, I think, from this new history, which is coming into focus, not just new history, but a new prehistory, is that our species has been far better at this sort of thing than we tend to give ourselves credit for. Remote ancestors and many more recent non-European societies have been extremely adept at protecting their freedoms. Uh, That's not to say that they were necessarily egalitarian. In the book, we document all kinds of different examples of societies that uh, maintained their freedoms in certain areas and sacrificed them in others. But it's that general picture of, of human history as a much more playful and experimental one um, than this conventional story of how our present system was the inevitable outcome of thousands of years of inexorable evolution. No, actually what we find is that if there's anything which distinguishes our present era, it's precisely its lack of imagination, our apparent inability to think outside the box about the kind of social and economic structures that we've created. In the broader sweep of human history, this is very uncharacteristic behavior for our species. We're the species that came up with all this stuff and also tried about 300 other alternatives in our long past on this planet. So the question we end up asking is not so much what are the origins of inequality, but why is it that we feel so incapable these days of reclaiming some of that capacity to reimagine and then recreate our societies in different forms, even when confronted with ecological catastrophe, um, which by general consent is where we find ourselves today. Well, in it, its holding out that light in the uh, wilderness that 
is so wonderful about your book. Uh, thank you. Thank you, David Wenrow, for speaking with us today about the dawn of everything, a new history of humanity. Thank you for having me on, Lewis. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.